so when I was 15, things in my home just reached a, an untenable point of um, difficulty and um, danger. And so I ran away. I called the, the local police and I'm like, the moment I tell you what's happening here, um, I'm afraid that, you know, I'll, I'll be killed, you know? So um, that's the reality of how violent my home was. So my only option was to run away, really. First day, the skipper said, "Sorry, guys, it's going to be a little rough today. There's some stormy weather, but um, you know, I hope you guys will all be okay." And we set off, and sure enough, here we were in these like short, steep waves, and I was staring at the sails, and then um, and so seasick, um, I was just throwing up constantly. <laughs> and the skipper was like, "Are you going to be okay?" And I'm like, "I love it." Blah. <laughs> so that was my introduction to sailing. It's not just about having a fleet of, of boats and being able to loan equipment to kids who, who can't, um, uh, can't afford it. Actually, I think some of the biggest things that kids in care need is for somebody to come to their community, reach out to them and say, we want you. You know, even if, even if we look different, um, our community, our yachting community wants you here and we want you to sail. Alana Connor's story is a remarkable and powerful one. Born into a violent family where she feared for her life, she ran away from home as a teenager and bounced around foster homes until she reached 18 and was told to fend for herself. By accident, she discovered sailing, and it's given her purpose and direction. Alana arrived in New Zealand at the end of 2019 as she circumnavigated the globe and has been here ever since. She's now close to finishing a figure of eight of New Zealand, and along the way has been casting light on children in care and raising money for them to participate in a Spirit of New Zealand adventure. It's a program that's gaining traction and momentum, and Alana would love nothing more than to see this develop into something much broader. Alana tells her amazing story on this podcast, from the trauma of her childhood and seemingly hopeless situation she found herself in, to suddenly sailing solo around the world. She talks about the challenges she's faced along the way, including being in New Zealand when COVID-19 hit, the impact her journey around the country has had so far, what Kiwis, including yacht clubs, can do to make sailing more inclusive, and how she's been able to rebuild her own life. It was a privilege to sit down and chat to Alana, who is an engaging and passionate individual, so I hope you enjoy the next hour or so. Alana Connor, welcome to Broadreach Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Well, we're um, actually sitting in the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron, and uh, there's a little cup that's just sitting a little bit down the, the hallway, not too far from us. Um, is there something in that that brings you to Auckland at this time? Yeah, actually, I did come here just to see the cup and um, to try to raise some awareness about my voyage for voice around New Zealand. So it's been an incredible experience to get to be here and watch the cup. I love the racing. I'm just in awe of 
all the work the team's put into it um, and the technology behind the scenes. So it's just great to get out and be able to support a major sailing event like that. And then to be a foreigner in this country and get to fold myself in with everyone celebrating something they have so much national pride around is, is a really special moment of inclusion for me. Well, we'll talk about your voyage um, in, in a bit of depth today. Where is, where's your boat right now? My boat is currently in New Plymouth on a mooring in Taranaki, and it's the longest I've left my boat in the last two years. I think it's been about a week and a half. So. A bit emotional, is it? It is, yeah. I think about her every day, and I've been thinking about texting some locals and asking them to send me pictures, which sounds a little bit neurotic, actually, but I feel quite attached to her. So. Mm. Well, it's probably the fact that you're sailing solo around New Zealand that you are so attached. Um, why are you sailing solo around New Zealand in a, in a figure eight? I'm sailing solo around New Zealand in a figure of eight to raise money and awareness for young people in foster care in this country to go on the spirit of New Zealand tall ship. But wasn't the original idea when you got here to go walk the uh, Te Araroa Trail? Uh, it actually wasn't. That's a great question. Um, the original idea when I got here was actually just to wait out cyclone season and keep going on a solo circumnavigation around the globe um, and to use the solo circumnavigation to raise awareness about, about kids in care around the world and shine a light for them. Um, but then when COVID hit, I got locked down here and had to revise my, my plan. So um, when I first uh, decided to stick around, I, I looked up a variety of things to do and and um, I knew I wanted to volunteer in some way and do something cool for kids in care and I ended up kind of surfing give a little looking at all these different charities and what they do and in the process I found out that somebody had walked the Ta'araroa trail to raise money for their local foster care organization I thought that was so cool and I used to take long walks before I took long sails so I thought oh I could do that and then I realized that I had a boat and I should just take a long sail instead now <laughs> And how long has the long sail around New Zealand taken so far? Um, so I left October 14th from Auckland, and uh, yeah, so it's been five months. Oh, five months, wow. It, it's been longer than expected, <laughs> and we're not quite done. Um, and I think by the end of it, it'll be about 3,000 nautical miles total. What, how long did you initially think it would take you? Oh, I was hoping to be back in time for the cup, mm -hmm. actually, to sail into Auckland and, and be here on my own little boat for the cup. But and what's the reason that it's sort of taken a bit longer? Um, I think there are a number of reasons. One is that the weather's been a bit strange this last season. So um, it's I believe it's been a La Nina year. And everywhere I go, everybody tells me that the weather is different than normal. And, and so I've had to wait longer for weather windows, and I've had a lot of wind from unexpected directions. Um, which kind of stall me out in some places. Uh, the other reason that it's taken longer is that as I sail around the country, I've just um, the momentum is built, and there are more and more people in every community that I want to meet, especially kids, um, Tamariki and Rangitahi. And so um, I just want to take my time now, and I don't want to miss any opportunity to, to meet young people and help um, encourage them towards their dreams, whether they're in care or, or not in care. What's been a highlight so far? Oh, gosh, that's tough. Um, the sailing's incredible. I love to sail, so that's amazing. Um, there's seriously nothing like sailing your own little yacht into the glory of Milford Sound by yourself. Um, but truly, the highlight, I think, is the people of New Zealand, the, the kids and the adults of, of New Zealand, and just their kindness, their supportiveness, the humility, the culture. Um, 
yeah, just learning more about New Zealand. It's been a, been a real highlight, um, but especially the kids and hearing their stories. There have been some challenges though, right? I, I hear something about engine problems, GPS problems. Just tell <laughs> us a little bit about those. Ongoing challenges. Um, <laughs> yeah, the latest one I'm grappling with, I've actually been grappling with since um, Golden Bay four months ago, I guess, just after I left to sail to Milford Sound from, from Golden Bay. And that is that my multifunction display chart plotter is also where my AIS targets display, so it's the only way for me to tell ships around me um, because my AIS unit doesn't actually have a, a visual screen that shows targets, so everything shows up, gets fed to the multifunction display. And the multifunction display has just been cutting out, so I get these beep messages that say, no GPS fix, no AIS targets. Um, and it's, it's an intermittent problem, which means that um, it's very difficult to try to solve, and I've messed around with all the wires behind in the background and haven't been able to find any, any issues with loose connections or anything like that. So not quite sure what the problem is, um, especially because the GPS is built into the unit itself, and it's showing that I'm picking up enough satellite coverage, so I really don't know why it's losing my GPS fix. Um, but it beeps in and out, and it's just constant, so it's like getting a, a pop-up all the time. And every time it beeps, uh, it wakes me up as well. <laughs> so when I'm trying to sleep in these little 20-minute increments around the country, that's hard enough. And then to have this thing just go off all the time, you know, I keep it on because I'm hoping that it will kick in and work, which it does sometimes, but most of the time it's been off. Um, so that's that's a continued problem I have right now. If there are any Ray Marine electricians out there who want to lend us a hand, I'm looking for some support to diagnose what's wrong in the system. Um, the greater issue is actually in... In, um, after I left Golden Bay uh, to sail down to Fjordland, I thought I'd done everything I needed to to make my engine nice and reliable because you really need it down there. And then um, partway down the coastline in that 72-hour run from Golden Bay to Milford Sound, I started having engine problems. And they plagued me all through Fjordland, all through the holidays. And of all places in New Zealand to have engine issues, it's not the place you want them. So it was quite a stressful time for me, uh, quite challenging. Meaning that you couldn't rely on your engine, so you had to sail the whole time and get out as fast as you can, or is, how did you approach that scenario? Um, yeah, so I prefer to sail as much as possible anyway, and and not to motor. I'm doing I'm doing more motoring on this figure of eight than I've ever done crossing oceans. Um, typically, my policy is if there's no wind, I just drift, and um, but on this, you know, I'm trying to get into certain ports and avoid impending weather systems. So um, I've needed to motor to, to make it a bit, a bit faster. Um, the bigger issue with not having an engine that's reliable in Fjordland is that the wind is just super fluky in there. So after I came into Milford Sound, it's like one minute there was no wind, the next minute there was heaps of wind, and then there was suddenly wind from the opposite direction, and it just switches around really fast in there. So you can't sail very reliably. Um, and that's the greater issue. The the fjords are so deep that you can't catch. Uh, so if you if your engine fails, um, you can't simply drop anchor and you know keep yourself off uh, off a coastline. And you have to get way too close to the these dramatic cliffs and shorelines in order to get an anchor to to hook. And then there's really fragile ecosystems there as well. So you really don't want to be dropping the pick. So um, I think that's what made it so challenging to not have my engine work reliably. It was that I knew I really needed it there since I couldn't sail um, reliably, and uh, and I also couldn't keep myself from from going uh, 
shipwrecking on the shores. Sounds like a a great combination to have when you're totally sleep deprived as well with all that beeping going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think, (laughs) Um, yeah. What have you kind of learned about New Zealand as you've got around? Mm. Uh, I've learned uh, that Crowded House are from New Zealand, not Australia, (laughs) and that you also invented pavlova. Um, all the big issues. Yeah, so so I'm quite I'm quite clear on who you guys are. And uh, <laughs> um, sailing wise, it's been it's been incredible to do so much near coastal sailing. I've done a lot of blue water sailing and a bit of cruising, like behind between islands. But there's a big difference between that and sailing along rugged coastline. Um, so it's, it's taken a different skill set, um, and yeah, quite a bit of navigation research as well. Um, I've learned the value of zooming in on your charts uh, if you're using digital charts, so make sure you zoom way in because uh, there are a lot of random rocks in places you wouldn't expect them in New Zealand. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I've, I guess I've learned not to be as intimidated, so I'm always scared. Um, I'm always quite anxious, and, and I call up my, my friends between the major chunks of this passage and say, oh, but I'm... I'm just so nervous the East Cape is, is so, you know, notorious for being so rough. And then we make it around the East Cape and it's peaceful and I, you know, pick the right weather window and it's all fine. And then I'm equally scared the next time I call them up and say, but now we have to go down the coast um, to the strait and I'm so nervous about it. And I'm so nervous about transiting the strait and Tory Channel and Fjordland and, 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 and. And um, so it's easy to get really intimidated by all the hazards of, of coastal sailing, especially for somebody who's kind of anxious like me. Yeah, it's often said that if you can sail around New Zealand, you can sail around the world. Do you agree with that statement? Um, it's interesting because I learned to sail in San Francisco and people say the same thing there. <laughs> so it's not... Oh, in, in Hawaii, they say that as well. Um, so it's a more common a more common phrase than you'd think. Um, but just like Crowded House and Pavlova, though, we invented that phrase. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so clearly, if you learn to sail in New Zealand... Uh, Yes, you can sail anywhere in the world. Um, it's just a different skill set, coastal sailing, than blue waters, long distance blue water sailing is, I'd say. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a bit tougher as a solo sailor. It's way tougher as a solo sailor because there's so many hazards when you're coastal cruising and there are a lot of cray pots here. And um, I deal with the same thing off the coast of California, there are a lot of crab pots uh, there. So hazards like that and... Um, smaller vessels that don't have AIS so you need to stay quite awake and alert because they'll be out night fishing and you're not going to see them on your AIS even if it is working um yeah I I always tell people the the way the wind shifts around here is is so interesting and and as as an example when I was sailing from Akaroa around Banks Peninsula to um Littleton uh I set my autopilot to sail a certain angle off the wind and we curved all the way around Banks Peninsula (laughs) without altering that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that can, that kind of wind shiftiness can be quite tricky. Yeah, welcome to New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You'd mentioned briefly, I guess, the purpose behind, you know, your circumnavigation, um, it, you know, trying to raise awareness around um, foster children. What, what sort of, um, what's the thinking behind that? What's the motivation behind that? Mm. The motivation behind that is that I was in care. 
So I went into foster care when I was 15, and I aged out of the system at 18. Um, aging out means you have your 18th birthday, and they say, have a great life, see ya, hope you feel prepared for adulthood. Um, and that's not really that different today in New Zealand than it was when I was aging out of care in the US. Um, so I'm just really passionate about changing outcomes for foster youth. I also think there are a lot of privacy um, concerns around foster youth, and, and rightfully so. The government does quite a bit to protect their privacy, but as a result, they just get sort of blurred as a, as a population, and people are really not aware of, um, of them as individuals. So I've met all these delightful young people, and I, I would love to be able to tell you all their stories, but um, when all you hear is these news reports that are quite um, generalized, about kids in care, they're not, it's hard to see them as real people, and they are. They're just these incredible kids that are so resilient, and they have their own hopes, and their own dreams, and strengths, and um, just not a lot of support. So I've known for a long time that in some capacity as an adult, I wanted to be able to give back to young people in care, and, and hopefully um, shed a little bit of light on the system, and I just feel really honored to be able to do something now. Um, to, to do that, and so I see it, what I'm doing as both um, shining a light for them as an example that you can come from that and do great things, and also shining a light on them so that other people can understand a bit better um, who they are and, and that they're out there and, and they're your kids, you know, they're your community. So you've, wrote, you've got to give a little page, mm -hmm. um, which I saw yesterday was around about $31,000. Um, what's the, what are you raising money for? I'm raising money so that young people with care experience in New Zealand can go on the Spirit of New Zealand tall ships, 10-day journeys. So everybody, it seems, knows about the Spirit of New Zealand, um, formerly the Spirit of Adventure in, in New Zealand, and how incredible those voyages are. And I've heard so many stories from adults who went like 30 years ago on a trip and still talk about how life-changing it was for them and how even the dividends that, that um, it paid occurred later in life, you know, for them. So people really seem to understand why it's transformative for a young person to get to go on that on that ship. Um, I'm so impressed by that program that I feel like it's just such a great fit for young people in care to give them that opportunity and a shot at going. Um, for me, when I went into care, I was a competitive athlete. I was a swimmer, and I loved water sports. I used to do a lot of canoeing and, um, yeah, things like that. And so I have always found the water to be quite healing, and I've always loved sport. But for young people in care, when you, get, when you go into care quite often, especially if you're a teenager, you get moved around a lot. So if you don't get a stable placement by the time you're, say, say 12, and this is kind of anecdotal, um, but it's, it's what happened to me as well, um, it's just really difficult to find stable placements for teenagers. So they end up in in kind of strange situations that aren't very nurturing and aren't very supportive. So it might be in group homes or residences. Sometimes if Oranga Tamariki can't find homes for a teenager, they just put them into a boarding school. Um, that does not supplant the need for parents or Fano. It just does not. There is no substitute for having a stable network of adults in your life throughout a couple of years, you know, at least minimum, that can expose you to the world and opportunity and, and kind of um, give you a stable platform underneath that. So the really incredible thing about getting kids onto the spirit of New Zealand is that it kind of gives them like a booster shot of all the skills you get from participating in sport or being on a team or joining something. Because um, for 10 days, uh, they, they don't have to worry about having 
somebody drive them to practice every week, say, to participate in, in it. So it's just 10 days. We just have to get them there. <laughs> and then once they're there, they get this intensive 10-day program of youth development and teamwork and leadership skills and resilience training. And they come out on the other side, a changed kid. Um, and that kind of opportunity, it can be such a big inflection point for a young person in care. Have any kids been on the spirit already through the work that you've done? And, and what sort of impact has that had on them? Yeah, um, there is uh, one scholarship recipient who's gone already. She went in January, and uh, she's a teenager, a uh, 17-year-old girl from um, from the North Island. And I understand that it was it was quite changing, life-changing for her. Um, and uh, I think the deeper message there, too, is um, that every kid deserves to also just have incredible experiences. And um, when I first started, when I st was raising money for the scholarship um, in the early days of it, and I thought of the young person going on the, on the trip, I was thinking, oh, there should be all these requirements for them to like pay it forward and talk about it and you know, help that next generation of young people in care. And I was talking to a friend of mine who comes from quite a privileged family in a stable home, and um, he said, Alana, you're wrong about that. But parenting, good parenting, is a gift of grace. It's given without strings attached. It's given without expectations. And it's given just because every child is a living person who deserves opportunity to grow and explore um, you know, with no expectation. And he was right. And so all I really wish for that girl is not that I could tell some incredible story about how it's changed her life and she wants to go be a captain of a tall ship someday, but rather just that we just gave her a gift um, to just explore and have an experience and have fun and grow um, that every young person deserves, no strings attached. Do you have a money value goal in mind? I do, yeah. Um, so there are around 6,000 young people in care in New Zealand, and 500 are aging out this year, so turning 18 and in need of opportunity and um, exposure to various industries and um, trying to figure out what to do next with their life without a lot of support. So my goal is that every young person who's aging out of care and wants to go on the ship can go, all 500 of them. And um, you know, I'm sure all 500 won't go, but what we'll do with that is, is leave a, a legacy of scholarship for the next year of 500 kids aging out of care and wondering what's next. So if people are listening and they'd like to donate, how will they find this? You can search for Voyage for Voice, that's V-O-Y-C-E, which is my charity partner, Voice for Kurongo Mai, along with the Spirit of Adventure Trust. Um, you can also go to my website, um, Peregrina Sales, on Facebook and Instagram and everything else, and I post about it all the time. Um, or you can go... Um, just to Voices website, it's uh, v-o-y-c-e dot org dot nz forward slash voyage and um, head on over to the Give a Little page and give whatever you can. You've touched a little bit about your background. Can you tell us a little bit more, I guess, about your childhood and some of the experiences that you had? Yeah, um, so I grew up in quite a violent home. That was rather unsafe. And... Um, I was a really good student. I sort of leaned in the direction of trying to do everything perfectly in order to escape the violence as much as possible. And so I was a good student. I always played sport. Um, and um, I loved I loved theater and music, and so I did plays in school and sang in choirs and things like that. Um, 
I love to play outside. I grew up in the country, I grew up in the foothills of the mountains um, on a small sort of family homestead farm. So um, if I wasn't showing rabbits in county fairs, then I was climbing trees and scraping my knees. Um, and there were a lot of rivers and lakes where I grew up, so I spent um, quite a bit of time on the water or in the water. I've always remembered that being a place of peace and tranquility for me. Um, so when I was 15, things in my home just reached a, an untenable point of um, difficulty and um, danger, and so I ran away. I stayed with a few friends' uh, families, um, but it was a very difficult time. In I actually, when I ran away, I called, I called the local runaway shelter and said, you know, I need a place to go that's safe. And they said, well, sorry, but your parents have to sign you in. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just preposterous, right? And then um, I called the the local police and said, this is what's happening in my home, and told them. And they said, well, hey, we can't do anything about that right now. Um, can't do anything about that tonight. So, uh, you know, but we could start an investigation, but there's a whole process behind that. And I'm like, the moment I tell you what's happening here, um, I'm afraid that, you know, I'll, I'll be killed, you know. So um, that's the reality of how violent my home was. So my only option was to run away, really. Um, and then over the course of the next few months, they, they did investigate, but um, the abuse in my home... Um, but that process was quite re-traumatizing for me. And I was struggling by that point with mental health issues as a byproduct of the trauma I'd experienced, um, which is what I see in, in kids in care today as well, is that um, the kids that I meet around the country, they're just, they're just amazing kids, and all they really need is, is good mental health care to help them overcome, especially the trauma that they experienced that probably landed them in care in the first place. So the lucky thing for me is that um, I... I was sort of in custodial limbo. The this, this system did not take custody of me um, because they, they couldn't. They need like a catalyst moment to do that for the state to, to uplift. And um, I, was, I was suicidal and I tried to kill myself and the family that I was staying with. Uh, they had three daughters and they, they were empathetic, but they said, we can't have you around our daughters and also we're taking you to a hospital. And they did. And, um, and that's what... Uh, that's when the state finally officially uplifted me or took custody of me. So I lived mostly in hospitals for my first couple of weeks, and then um, they placed me in a home with a family. Um, I was like, don't worry, guys, I got this. Like, I'm on medication now. You've officially diagnosed me <laughs> with depression and PTSD. I've got a few coping skills under my belt. I'm going to be fine. <laughs> and I went back to school and um, stress and triggers and everything else, and... Um, you know, just a couple weeks later, I was I was uh, self-harming and I wanted to die again, you know. So um, I'm back in hospital and I remember my, my caseworker at the time driving me to hospital a couple hours away because um, I lived in quite a rural community and saying to me, oh, I worked so hard to get you that family. You know, they were just right across the street from your high school and you got to stay there and be with your friends. You know, why couldn't you just make it work? And the answer why I couldn't just make it work is because if you live through 15 years of trauma, it takes more than a few weeks uh, to heal and get stable again. And um, so the the lucky side of that for me is that after that moment, I ended up in, in mental health residences. And I had a caseworker after that, and my, my next caseworker, 
who fought really hard to get me into one of the best mental health residences at the time on the west coast of the United States. And I lived in that mental health residence for um, just shy of 15 months. Um, and uh, that's kind of what gave me the stable platform to, to spring from for a healthier adult life. Um, but I was, I was on my own, living in my own apartment by 17, and um, just kind of trying to fight my way through the world. That's a pretty powerful story. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you often think about it, and, and I guess what sort of emotions does it conjure up? Is it anger? Is it frustration? Are you hopeful? Are you jealous, I guess, of other people who may have had a inverted commas, normal upbringing? I, I am not jealous, no. Um, I, I guess, you know, for so many years as an adult, I tried to pass, I tried to leave that behind. I thought um, if I couldn't get over what had happened to me, if I didn't work on myself and um, in a concerted way and make something different of my life, then it was kind of like letting the bad guy win. And so that is always my motivation going forward after that. That's how I worked hard and put myself through uni and um, you know, became the first person in my family to graduate and, and get a degree and go on to have a career and everything else. But um, yeah, and that was all motivated by if I don't figure out how to have a healthy life and healthy relationships, then it'll be like my my abusers won. And, um, and I didn't want that, so I win. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of what I think about when I think about it. But... Um, yeah, I think the other thing is that there's so much stigma around coming from that, that by the time I did sort of achieve all those things and I was working in Silicon Valley um, with all these people who came from privilege and went to Harvard or wherever, um, I was just sort of trying to hide what I'd come from all the time. And it just comes up like the legacy of care and your care story lasts the rest of your life, no matter how old you get. So people, even around Christmas time, there was just this assumption that everyone was going to go visit their families and had a mom and a dad and people say, oh, where do your parents live? It's like, how do you answer that question in a workplace, in a professional way? Um, so I just, I just would always kind of dodge and try to pass. And it's been very um, interesting the last, the last six months in particular throughout this voyage to come forward and tell my story because I'm telling it really for the first time and um, for the first time publicly and explore that. There have also been parallels between my voyage and my care story that have been really interesting and I did not anticipate um, like for example I am sailing from port to port to port with usually no contacts in each port I land in um, or maybe one or two little leads and then kind of depending on the kindness of strangers and the support of the sailing community to to help amplify our story and help us fundraise and you know, maybe help me fix a problem with my engine or, or take me to the shop to get some groceries or um, you know I'm not I'm not making any money at all. I'm, I'm a full-time volunteer, and I love doing that, and I'm so happy living on nothing. I think material stuff matters far less than, than we realize. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm somewhat dependent on people who want to bring me down a, a bag of fruit from their trees, you know? <laughs> and, um, gosh, there are some real parallels between that and bouncing from, from facility to facility and home to home um, and only staying a few weeks there and wondering if when people say they want to help you, if you're an imposition or um, if they really mean it and they're really happy to help you, and if feeling and worrying that you're a burden. So there have been a lot of parallels I didn't expect that have brought up some things for me. But um, Kiwis have been so kind everywhere I've been and so supportive. Um, 
yeah. I, I joke, I've joked throughout my adult life with, with close friends that um, I'm a community project. Um, and I feel like that now more than ever. Um, but I'm just one, I'm just one small story. You know, the truth is that the 6,000 young people in care are a community project for New Zealand, and I mean that in the best possible way. You know, they, are, they are your children. Um, they are dependent on their communities and on this um, fano of five million to care about their childhoods and their lives. Um, and that's really the message I'm, I'm trying to send. So, so if you hear my story and you're moved by it, um, I'd ask that you extrapolate out from that and consider the, the 6,000 children who have stories that you know, I can't make personal for you, um, but are just as, as moving as mine is. So how does a person who's bounced around a little bit, but you know, had a fairly tough upbringing, um, been in foster care, then become, get into sailing? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was an accident. So, um, Good accident, I'm guessing. That's a fantastic accident. Happiest accident I've had, I think. Um, I, uh, well, I always loved water sports, like I said, and I loved boating. Um, and swimming, so um, I never thought sailing was an option. Um, it, I thought it was for for rich people, so I didn't think I could really get involved in that. And then, about ten years ago, uh, a boyfriend of mine won a trip through work and invited me to go along. And it was a sailing trip through Greece on a fifty-something foot yacht um, from Mykonos to Athens. And I got on the on the yacht, and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And the first day, the skipper said, sorry guys, it's gonna be a little rough today, there's some stormy weather, but um, we have to keep going or we won't make the itinerary. So um, you know, I hope you guys all will be okay. And we set off and sure enough, here we were in these like short, steep waves and I was staring at the sails and then um, I was utterly transfixed and fascinated by how like the physics and mechanics of how a sailboat works um, and so seasick. Um, I was just throwing up constantly <laughs> and the skipper was like, are you going to be okay? And I'm like, I love it. Blah. <laughs> so that was my introduction to sailing. Um, by the end of the trip, I absolutely knew I wanted to learn to sail. So I came back to San Francisco, which is where I was working and living and looked up classes and they were $400 for a one weekend ASA 101 course. Like, well, oh yeah, that's right. Sailing's for rich people. <laughs> and while I did work in Silicon Valley, I, I did a non-technical role. I'm not one of those people who who um, who did great in Silicon Valley, um, just kind of eking my existence out. Um, so to me, a four hundred dollar class was uh, four hundred fifty dollar class was just yeah, it wasn't an option. So I, I sort of shelved it, and then about two years later, I had a a Groupon. It's like one of those coupon community coupon aggregators come up in my inbox, and um, it was half off a weekend course at the local sailing school, and. Um, I think I just had a breakup also, and I always end up doing crazy things after breakups. So I was like, I'm doing that. I'm going to go learn to sail. <laughs> so yeah, I bought the coupon, and I went to sail, and I loved it. And we were sailing little Ranger 22s or Ranger 24s, I think. Um, at the end of the weekend, the sailing instructor was like, why were you waiting? You know you could just go down to any yacht club, and they've got weekly races, and people are always looking for crew. You just jump on a boat, and that's the best way to learn it anyway. And... Um, no, I did not know that. Like, had I known that, I would have done that much sooner. So I think that's one thing um, that I'd love to spread the word about, and, I, and I've been talking about to kids that I meet, is 
um, and adults that I meet, hey, if you want to get into sailing, there's this really low-cost way to get into sailing. All you need is a pair of gloves and a good attitude, and usually somebody will loan you gloves. So um, get down there and go sailing if you want to. Go look out, go look out for the racing. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's what I did. I, I went down to my local uh, yacht club, San Francisco, um, in San Francisco, South Beach Yacht Club, and I walked onto the docks and um, walked up and down the docks looking for a boat. And one of the first boats I came to was this uh, was a Yankee 30, which is just kind of plastic, classic um, keelboat, right next to a J105. And everybody from one boat was on the other boat. They were all laughing and smiling. And somebody was up at the top of the mast to the J105. And um, everyone from the boat was like, yeah, come along, come with us um, on the Yankee 30. And later on, the way that the J-105 skipper likes to tell this story is that actually he was the one at the top of the mast, um, and he swears that everybody from the crew next door just left him there so that they could recruit me onto their boat. <laughs> um, but I jumped on board, and I raced with that boat for the next two and a half years. And um, anytime anybody asked me to race, I said yes. I just, I loved it. I thought it was so fascinating, and um, it is the best way to learn, I think. Uh, I think an a couple of key features of that boat. One is that um, there wasn't really any yelling. Um, so while they really cared about racing and they were serious about it, it was a it was a good boat to be on as a learner. Um, and it was a, a friendly and open boat that was willing to teach. And um, those characteristics made a big difference in my experience. I hear quite different stories from other people, especially women who step onto boats that end up having kind of a, a yuck environment, you know, or a yuck culture on board. And it turns them off racing completely. And it just doesn't need to be like that. And I lucked into a boat where it wasn't like that. Um, another thing was on board my boat were a couple of single-handers who had done um, transoceanic races. So they'd both done pack cups, both in small boats under 30 feet. One was a woman who had done it in her 27-foot hawk farm and another was a man who'd done it in a more 24, um, called Cookie Monster. Um, and I think meeting single-handed sailors and short people willing to do short-handed sailing very early on in racing was quite helpful for me uh, because it's, it opened my eyes to the fact that that's possible. Um, and while I didn't want that for myself, I, I wanted to go cruising someday, but um, I wanted to do that with somebody. Um, at least I knew single-handed sailing was an option and that you could sail an ocean single-handed. So, um, yeah, so anytime I could race, I said yes. And, and when uh, people were, were fixing things after races, I'd ask if I could hang around or help or pass them tools or whatever, because I was quite curious about it. Was that one of the first times that you felt like you belonged somewhere? <laughs> this question keeps coming up. Um, it's probably the most emotional question that people ask me. Um, yeah, I haven't quite figured out where I belong yet. Um, but I will say that it's the closest thing to Fano that I've ever had is that race crew and the skipper and his wife um, have become yeah, the closest thing to parents I've ever had as well um, over the last seven years and that's been a beautiful thing but I think the whole sailing community in general can be quite supportive and, and like a family to one another and um, yeah I do feel a sense of belonging in the sailing community. I still sometimes feel like I'm on the outside, but sort of pressing my face against the glass, you because know, I didn't grow up, I didn't have the normal pathways into sailing. You know, I didn't grow up dinghy sailing. I didn't do a learn to sail program in Opties. And um, yeah, I feel like that's a big part of a lot of adult sailors' identities in New Zealand anyway. Yeah, I think that's changing a little bit. I don't know that there's necessarily a normal pathway anymore. You know, we've mm. got foiling and different types of boats and keel boats and dinghies. So, 
you know, it doesn't, I think that that perception may be changing and hopefully is changing over time mm. over in here, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. That's great to hear. <laughs> so then you talked about this solo sailing, this idea of it. How did it become reality? Hmm. Um, so I, about four years ago, it's 2021 now, so I have to redo my math in my mind. <laughs> I think it was about four years ago. So I've been racing for a couple years. By then I'd learned that people get boats and they go sail them on oceans and see the world. And I'm like, that's super cool. I mean, who hears that as a sailor and doesn't think that's amazing? Really? I could go to Bali? Okay. Where do I sign? Like, um, so um, I knew I wanted to go cruising. And then, yeah, about two and a half years into racing, uh, I got really sick. And... I've always been athletic and outdoorsy. When I wasn't sailing, I was taking really long walks, like walking the Camino de Santiago or the Kumonokoro in, in Japan. And um, so to not be able to do any through hiking or um, tramping or, um, or sailing for a season was really, really hard for me. And it was just a big wake-up call that it doesn't matter how old or young you are, at any point in time, your body could stop doing what you want it to do. And it made me think, like, am I really doing what I want to be doing with my life? And as I reflected on that, I realized that the answer was no. Um, and trying to unpack that, you know, kind of examining that, like, well, why am I sitting behind a desk making software that I don't really think is that important? Um, doing a job I, I never studied for or wanted just so I can have stability and, and income and the more I... I took that part, I realized that the system that I come from as a foster kid taught me that. And the system emphasizes safety and safety first. So it's all about risk mitigation. It's all about stabilizing a child. There's a huge difference between being stable and thriving. And the system had taught me to focus on stability. So when I was in care, um, I had been selected in school for skill in writing and I really wanted to be a writer. When I, when I was in care and facing the prospect of turning 18 and aging out and being on my own, it was, it was told to me both directly and indirectly, like, that's not really an option. You don't get to go be a writer. You don't get to go um, be an artist. You need to do, you need to go get a real job and support yourself and you have nothing to fall back on, nor will you ever. So figure it out. <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> and I'm, um, yeah, I'm thankful to that in some ways because it allowed me to enter an adulthood and, and build stability for myself. But when I got to the other side of stability and started to examine my life while I was sick, I'm like, oh, wait, uh, I'm not doing anything I actually wanted to do with my life. So um, I thought, what, you know, what am I waiting for? And there's this poem that I read that says, um, like, we are the ones we've been waiting for. And that was really the realization I had was um, I'd been waiting for somebody who'd want to go sailing and cruise the world with me and that person wasn't around so um, I was the one I was waiting for so I started shopping for boats <laughs> and reading every book on, on boats I could find um, because while I had the racing side of it and the sailing side of it I didn't, um, I didn't know anything about how to inspect an old sailboat and I had a very very small budget and I did something that the system uh, and, and 
caseworkers and carers back in the day probably would have told me was crazy. Um, and I sunk my, my whole nest egg into a, an old 1985 Finkeel Sabre 34 and um, thought I'll just have to figure out how to make this work. <laughs> so when I was, when I was well um, again and the boat was ready, I pointed it for the horizon and that was towards Hawaii. As your first solo journey? Why not? Sure. <laughs> How'd that go? Um, it was a learning experience. <laughs> uh, so um, I left in early July, which is cyclone season in the Northern Pacific, and that's why I didn't go to Mexico, actually, from California. Um, that's why I went to Hawaii instead, because while there are, are cyclones in Hawaii, they're much less common in Mexico. They're, they're really common. So... So I headed for Hawaii, and about maybe seven days into the voyage, it became clear that there was a cyclone spinning up off the coast of, a hurricane spinning up off the coast of Mexico, and the forecasted track for it was in the direction of Hawaii. So um, when I, I just sort of monitored it for some time, and then when I got to um, latitude 25, I just sailed along 25, and I didn't go any further south, so I was, I was aiming for um, like 19 and a half and so I just kept going west along along 25, and um, the forecast kept holding, and it was clear that the hurricane wanted to hang out with me and go to Hawaii and maybe make landfall in the same place, and I was like, look, I'm a solo sailor for a reason. I don't want to get with you, and so I hope to, and I hope to for six days during that passage. Um, that's a learning experience in and of itself, because heaving to a fin kill boat's not, not easy and uh, changes in different conditions. So um, it also was mentally probably the most arduous thing I've ever done out there sailing. There's something there's something about there's something about inaction and how frustrating inaction is when you really want to take action. And um, sometimes the best course of action is inaction. So in this case, it was heave to and don't sail, but to sit there and drift like a cork on the ocean for six days was very frustrating because there was nothing I could do and I tell that story to kids in care while I travel around um, that sometimes the best best thing you can do in really difficult circumstances is just um, just endure and wait it out but it left you clearly wanting more right because then you come up with an idea to go not just to Hawaii but around the world yeah well I knew during that passage that I absolutely love being at sea alone, which I didn't know if I would or not, and I, I did. I loved it. I love everything about being in the middle of the ocean and, um, and alone with my, well, I'm not completely alone, alone with my dog, um, my beautiful dog, Zia. And so um, once I started sailing again, I just remember feeling like I was riding a, a wild horse, you know. I was, uh, my hair was streaming in the wind, and then um, it was downwind, and we were surfing, and it was just amazing, the rest of the sail to Hawaii and uh, so exhilarating and I just, I just loved it. I loved every minute of sailing out there alone and I knew I wanted to keep going. So I spent about a year cruising around in Hawaii but I missed the window to sail south to the South Pacific and carry on with the circumnavigation from Hawaii which n navigation wise would have been far more sensible because I already knew I wanted to keep, keep going and I wanted to do more blue water crossings. Hawaii is a difficult place to have a sailboat. Um, it's not impossible to cruise there but um, there are a lot of reasons why it's a difficult place to cruise and I didn't want to spend another winter in Hawaii with all the storms that hit the North Shores and um, 
not so many bays and terrible holding and expensive marinas that are too crowded and don't have room for you. So I decided to sail back to California instead of stay there any longer. So um, I, I did the passage from, from Hawaii back to San Francisco, which was 28 days. Also really amazing experience. It's my second Blue Water Passage. And then always with the intention that when I got back to California, I'd take the time to to do whatever I needed to do to the boat to get it ready to cross to New Zealand. And um, that would be the first leg of my solo circumnavigation. Um, so about five months in California, getting visas and prepping the boat and having some support from my race crew back home and doing so, and, and then setting off uh, down the coast to San Diego first to do a last bit of, of boat work, and then um, across the Pacific. So you leave California in 2018 at some stage, wasn't it? Uh, it was May 2019. Okay. What was that experience like, knowing that you were going to be away for a long time? Yeah, well, it's longer than I expected it to be. <laughs> I thought for sure at some point I'd be able to fly home and visit, but it didn't quite work out that way. So um, it's a big adventure. Um, I love traveling, and I love traveling abroad, so so to me that wasn't foreign. Um, the, the independence it would require, the self-reliance it would require was quite intimidating for me was super nervous also about crossing the ITCZ and the equator, so that kind of band of variable weathers where there's thunderstorm and thunderstorms and lightning and things like that and, and nasty squalls. I was really, really scared about that. Um, that went okay. And then we made landfall in the Marquesas 25 days later. So at that point in time, that actually was my shortest blue water passage since the passage to Hawaii was 26 and the passage back to California was 28. Um, and then it was just... Uh, everything was different about cruising through French Polynesia. So the people that you meet when you make landfall in the Marquesas, most of them have all done a blue water passage to get there. Um, all of them have done a blue water passage to get there. So they've come from Panama or Patagonia or the Galapagos or from California or Mexico. And um, so there's just this different attitude, like such a tight community. And I think there's a lot less judgment because um, everyone knows that you must have worked hard to get there. Um, you must have had to count on yourself. So when you do need help, um, people are really willing to help each other out. Um, and and it's just interesting to see how everyone does it differently. You know, some people there are really tiny boats with nothing at all, and some people there are really big flash boats with everything. And, um, and yet there's this sort of like equalized um, feeling across the community that, you know, we all we all kind of did this and we're all kind of in this together because the ocean is is the great leveler so um yeah but but i was nervous about french polynesia because the marquesas are all pretty wild the two motors are pretty wild so it's quite a ways before you get to tahiti and you have access to heaps of provisions and um marine supplies and support um, so you really are, are quite self-reliant but um but the community helps to fill in the gaps there you're clearly a person who can cope with challenges um, and you're self-reliant, as you say, because you've had to, right? Do you feel like solo sailing is something that almost you know anyone can do? I wouldn't say that it's something anyone can do, but I could. I would say that if it's something that you feel called to try, there's no reason why uh, why you shouldn't. I mean, if I can do this, I think anybody can <laughs> who wants to. Um, but I do meet a lot of people who say like, they have no desire to solo sail. So um, for, 
for those people who know that it's just not their not their thing, not their cup of tea, um, you know, obviously I think they'd have a hard time. But everyone else, yeah, you can. You can do it. You mentioned your sleep patterns when sailing around New Zealand and it was in sort of twenty minute cycles, which I can't get my head around. But what about in the you know, the the blue ocean sort of passages that you're talking about? Is it a little bit more relaxed than that or are you also coming up every twenty minutes just to check everything's okay? No, and that's, I mean, that's one of the features of blue water sailing that makes it so much easier than coastal cruising is. Um, so hats off to coastal cruisers in this country for, for what they go through to, to cruise these rugged, rugged shores. When I'm offshore um, sailing, the first 200 nautical miles that I'm within land, um, that, during that stretch of time um, or that distance, I, I tend to wake up every... 30 minutes or so and look at the horizon or 20 minutes and look at the horizon but it only takes uh, 36 hours to get far enough offshore that that's over um, if you're if you're 200 nautical miles offshore so from then on I pretty much just sleep when I'm tired in fact I, I'll catch myself like engrossed in a book or writing something and um, and I'll realize I'm a little bit tired and I'll actually make myself put the book down and take a nap because I, I believe in um, bankrolling as much sleep as you can so that if if things get really bad, you can uh, you'll be able to make it through. Whereas if you don't force yourself to rest whenever you possibly can, then um, when you do hit a bad situation, you have to stay awake for a long stretch of time. You might not have it in you. Um, so usually, once I'm more than 200 nautical miles offshore, I'm sleeping for a couple hours at a time, and I have um, radar and I have AIS, both a transceiver and a receiver now. So. Um, I'm able to, to receive signals from boats in my vicinity, and I'm also sending out signals. Um, and those both have radius alarms, so I just set them to go off if anything comes even remotely within, um, within any sort of distance of me. Um, also, the boat wakes you up. So I'm, I'm actually quite a heavy sleeper, and one of the things I was most nervous about about offshore solo sailing was that I would not be able to wake up if, if like an alarm went off and something needed to be done, especially by the second or third day when you're really sleep deprived, because um, you crash hard when you when you fall asleep. But um, right away, I mean, like the first night out at sea alone, or second night out at sea alone, um, the boat's motion just changes while you're sleeping if you've got too much canvas up or um, if something's changed and not quite right and it wakes you up so um, that's been like quite a delightful discovery is that Winfula will tell me when she needs something um, and I'm able to sleep for a few hours at a time. So you land in New Zealand what late 2019 I think um, I think you, were, you talked about doing this circumnavigation um, while you were here but then obviously the world changes quite dramatically um, were you nervous watching what was happening internationally and what that might mean for your plans? I was, yeah. So um, I had set off in early March to sail from the Bay of Islands down to the Marlborough Sounds because I had some friends down there that I wanted to visit um, that I'd met crossing the Pacific. And so um, I was going to cruise down the coastline from the Bay of Islands on, on down to the Marlborough Sounds and sort of take my time doing it. I it was a wet or it was a more wet autumn than I expected, and so um, sort of got driven in, driven into um, Fangre to stop because there was a I think it was the remnants of, of Cyclone Greta Gretel or something like that, and um, just a lot of contrary winds. 
so it took longer for me to get down the coastline than expected and by the time I got to Fangre a week and a half two weeks into March um, people were really talking about this virus like it was arriving on the shores of New Zealand and people were being asked to isolate if they'd come back from a trip overseas and all of that and then I sailed to Great Barrier and there was again really wet weather um, while I was on Great Barrier I also had a puncture in my kayak which is my only dinghy um, my inflatable kayak so I couldn't go ashore that week and that was fine with me I had some work to do anyway so I was just happy to be offline and in a remote bay without reception and um, then when I set off again to keep going south um, I was crossing the channel between Great Barrier and Coromandel and I got the message on my phone saying the whole country's gone into lockdown you must shelter in place and it had already been a full day since we'd gone into lockdown so um, I wasn't really sure what that meant for me or what to do about it I had been listening to Radio New Zealand's podcasts and um, immediately opened up the stream there to try to see, you know, what were the headline stories. And one of them, one of the first ones I listened to was the people on Great Barrier being really frustrated by all the Auckland yachties who had loaded up their their yachts and gone out there um, and saying, you know, we don't have the services to support a whole community of yachties here. We can't, we don't have the rubbish pickup and we don't have grocery stores and, um, you know, access to water and facilities and um, you know, please don't come here. <laughs> and so it felt like it would be really disrespectful to turn around and go back there. But I was also, you know, off the coast of the Coromandel, which is no place to stay either. I didn't know the winter weather patterns in New Zealand because I never planned on staying here through winter. So I didn't know if the East Coast was going to end up being an, a quite unpleasant place in winter. Um, so, yeah, so I ended up sticking around. Um, I made my way down to Tauranga, which is where I locked down on the boat in, in Pilot Bay there at the foot of the mount, um, and tried to come up with a new a new plan. So, so why do a figure of eight, and why not just uh, a loop? Um, well, a figure of eight looks like the infinity symbol, and what I'm hoping to, to create is infinite horizons um, for young people in care. And part of that is because I, I feel like that was given to me, and it was given to me by my grandmother. So during level four lockdown here, very soon after I found out that we'd gone into lockdown while I was still trying to find safe harbor, um, I also learned that my grandmother, who's my only, um, really always been my only support in life, um, had fallen and hit her head and she was in the hospital. So um, typically when she's had any medical issues in the past, I've been there uh, to support her and coordinate her care. But here I was half a world away with the whole world going into lockdown and um, having to, to navigate all of that from afar. So I was at a real crossroads, you know, do I just stick my boat on a mooring and take myself and my dog and go back to the States and be there for her, um, or do I stay? And as, as lockdown uh, proceeded, I found out that she was gonna be unable to take care of herself. She'd rapidly developed dementia, um, moved her into a rehab facility while we assessed, coordinated her care once she, she was discharged back home for an interim period until I could get her into a, um, a, a facility where she would have regular care. And um, it was quite hard for her. She was in those early stages of dementia when there's a lot of paranoia and sadness and frustration, and I felt just terrible that I wasn't there with her. And But I always remembered that she always wanted me to go and follow my dreams. And she never wanted to be a limiting factor in that. She wanted my horizons to be infinite. And um, so I knew that if she, if she could have expressed it, she would have been very 
angry with me if I'd come back to take care of her. So um, I decided to stay in New Zealand, but if I was going to stay in New Zealand and be so far from the one person that I've loved the most and has loved me the most in my life, um, then I was going to do something with my time that really mattered in living memory of her. And that's why I decided to solo figure of eight around New Zealand for, um, for charity, for kids in care. So over the last year, um, as I've developed this figure of eight, planned for it, and then um, especially the last few months of the figure of eight, um, from, from Stewart Island up the east coast of the South Island and through the Strait up to New Plymouth, um, she's been declining quite rapidly. And uh, on Friday, the second day of racing up America's Cup, um, I, I got the call that it was, it was time, to, time to say goodbye and um, send her on her way. And, and I did that, so she just passed away a few days ago. And now I'm doing this in memory of her. Um, so I think she proves a point, which is that all it takes is one person who really believes in a, a young person for them to know that anything is possible for them. And I'd like to be, if there are any young people in care out there, you know, um, I want to express that I'm, I am at least one person that believes that infinite things are possible for them, just as my grandmother did for me. So this Voyage for Voice is in, um, in memory of my grandmother. You've gone to a number of locations around the, um, the country and you've been to a lot of yacht, yacht clubs uh, to tell your story. Mm. Uh, what's that interest been like um, and what sort of guess the main message that you've been um, letting people know about? Mm. Um, well, first of all, I'm really thankful to all the yacht clubs and sailing clubs I've visited around the country. Uh, they have been just these su amazing supports. You know, people have been so kind and um, and so generous, and um, quite thankful to them for the way that they've gotten behind our our mission with Voyage for Voice. Um, I think the main message I'm trying to send is that um, young people in care in this country deserve access to opportunity and to the water and to sailing, just like any young person. And so for sailing clubs, you know, my main message is how are you making sure that your community is diverse and inclusive? If you've got a youth sailing program, what are you doing to make sure that kids who come from less um, privileged backgrounds have access to it? And Simply saying we have a learn to sail program and it's open to the public and it's free or low cost, that's not enough. Um, and I think I've been talking with them about how they can be be more active about outreaching to to the community of kids in care and also just you know um, young people who are from less affluent families and um, might not think of getting a chance to go on the water or might think sailing isn't for them or whatever. Um, uh, talking to to yacht clubs about how to include them more. And um, the really amazing thing about Voice Fakurongo Mai, my charity partner, is that they're a national advocacy charity. And, and I looked for a national foster youth charity on purpose because I wanted this to be something that would, would speak to people in the entire country. Um, so Voice Fakurongo Mai stands, Voice stands for VOYC, Voice of the Young Care Experienced. So the goal is um, for 
everyone to be listening to the voice of those who are who are care experienced or in care. And one of the biggest things that, that they want is access to opportunity and experiences. So um, voice through their advocacy and um, connections to the young people in care around the country can help to identify and source young people in care in every single community that might um, want to participate in sailing. So if you're a yacht club or a sailing club or a youth on water program of any kind and you're looking to um, be more inclusive you can just contact voice and say hey you know we'd love to have some foster kids who if they want to join the team will help make sure that they can we'll cover their fees or we'll be patient while we go through the paperwork process to get orangutamariki to cover their fees or whatever um but you could just reach out to voice and and so i make those introductions in all the places that i stop and i that's one of my favorite things to do is kind of leaving behind this web of connections that will support young people in care in every community even once i go um so that's one of my main messages to the clubs um and to the kids and especially to the young women sailors out there and and the adult women sailors out there and all sailors out there is um are you centering joy in your life or are you just centering stability um, because if you're not centering joy in your life and, um, and you want something other than what you're doing, uh, there's no time like the present, and you have permission. You're the only person who can give yourself permission to follow your own joy. Um, and I hope, that I'm, I hope that I'm setting a bit of an example with that, um, that, um, yeah, that everybody's hopes and dreams really matter. Have uh, you heard stories of your clubs being proactive and, and, and you know you open their eyes and, and things begun to move as you move on as well? Yes, I'm. I am so excited that you asked that. Um, so in fact, just last weekend, you know, as the America's Cup sailing is going on, Mercury Bay Boating Club in Fitianga uh, hosted an event to bring foster youth out onto the water on Hobie Cat sailing. Um, all of the kids who went out had never been sailing before. They were rangatahi like 15 to 18, I think. Um, and uh, Mercury Boating Club just absolutely rolled out the red carpet. So they collaborated with Voice to um, have a one-day sailing event. They brought them into the club. Um, they had a welcome. They took them out on the water. They matched the youth sailors in their program. And they have this like incredible team of, of uh, teenage girl youth sailors and partnered um, experienced youth sailors with these young people who'd never been on a boat before on every single Hobie Cat, got them out there on the water, zipped all over the bay, um, talked about the, the cultural um, significance of both uh, Cook and um, his arrival there and also the Maori histories there as well of voyagers um, in that bay and um, yeah, had a big meal together, a big feed afterwards and uh, I heard that the club is just absolutely buzzing and um, on top of that it opened these new connections for, for voice and for the kids and um, there were some volunteers with the Mercury Bay Boating Club who are involved in um, racing, um, like marathons or half marathons or night runs and things like that, who are looking to now going forward set some goals with these kids around um, around fitness and get them into you know running events as well um, and waiving fees for them to participate in that so it's just cool it's created this um, it's opened their eyes the kids who got to go to new possibilities and it's opened the eyes of the people who participated in it from the boating club especially the Commodore Jonathan Klein and um, the the youth sailors who, who supported it it's opened their eyes to um, how incredible these young people are and that um, they can have an awesome time including them in their community it must feel quite good it does feel good, but um, I, d I can't take any credit, you know. Um, 
the people I meet along the way who take the time to listen to my story and fold it into their hearts and then take action from it, um, I'm just so thankful to them. Like, I feel like those people are the ones who are responsible for the change that's going to happen as a result and for any sustained change. Um, it's not just uh, donating once or hearing me, but taking this into your heart, understanding that these kids are your kids, they're in your community, and then taking, stepping up and taking responsibility for them and being excited and enthusiastic and joyful about that partnership going forward. So, um, gosh, I can't. I just don't feel like I can take any credit or be that proud of that. I think Mercury Bay Boating Club has a lot to be proud of and their youth sailing program has a lot to be proud of for what they've done. So, so when you tell your story, do you find that a little therapeutic in some way um, because of the so much that you've been through? I don't know. I think um, I've had a lot of therapy in my life, um, both as a teenager when I was in care and then as an adult. It's something that I've gone back to and um, worked on myself in various ways um, throughout the years. So I think that a lot of a lot of my story I had already sort of processed and then reprocessed. Um, I don't think that telling my story itself is necessarily therapeutic. It's actually kind of exhausting, to be completely honest. Um, um, but what what's incredible is to be able to use my story for change. Like I'm not out here telling my story because it's it's fun for me or um, because it's my favorite thing to do when I wake up in the morning. My favorite thing to do when I wake up in the morning is go sailing and pet my dog. Um, I'm telling my story not because I'm really getting so much out of it, but because it's making a difference. Um, and uh, yeah, so I I wouldn't say that it's it's necessarily been therapeutic for me to tell my story, but um, it's incredible to be able to do something good with my yacht and with my life and um, and with my story, and that is therapeutic. To be able to give back to the world um, makes me feel better about the world. So you've still got the leg to go from New Plymouth, um, and then finally arriving back here in, in Auckland. What's what next? What's the plan after that? A lot of people have been asking me that question lately. Just since I've sort of neared the end of my journey, I think after my second Cook Strait Transit, now people are like, okay, what's next? Um, I haven't, you know, I've thought about it a bit, um, but truthfully, I'm just so focused on raising the, the most amount of money and awareness for these young people in care so that they can go on the spirit of New Zealand, but um, I'm not really, I don't have any solid plans for what's next at all. Like, it's really dependent on what happens in the world with COVID as well. Um, I would never want to put my yacht or my, my pup into um, unsafe circumstances. And my fear is that if we were to leave New Zealand um, before COVID is sort of settled and sorted out, that we could end up being locked down in a country that's cyclone prone. And I wouldn't want, uh, I wouldn't want that for us. So. Um, I'm really thankful to New Zealand for letting me stay, and um, my visa is in place until until June as a visitor. So um, I guess we'll just kind of have to see how how COVID evolves around the world. I think there's also just been a lot of momentum that's built as a result of this, and you know, even more maybe than I thought would. Um, and people are talking about young people in care, uh, and there's changes going on in the system here as well, with um, you know changes in Orangutan Mariki and realizing that, um, you know, 
uh, Maori and Pacific are disproportionately represented in care in this country and um, that changes need to happen. And so um, I'm so glad to be just one more voice sort of amplifying that need. And um, I'd love to make sure that what we've built with, with our Voyage for Voice gets translated into into some broader some broader societal change and improving things for kids in care. Um, especially, I think, I'm, I'm becoming increasingly passionate about seeing more diversity diversity and inclusion in um, youth sailing programs around the country. So um, I'd love to I'd love to help support that. Um, think that there are some some things that I've heard as I travel around the country about youth sailing programs and their pain points or yacht clubs and their pain points. And then um, from kids in care or with care experience about their pain points. And um, I think if there were if everybody sort of understood each other a bit better, we might be able to make programs uh, that were more effective at folding in people from those communities, like folding in young people from those communities. So I'd love to help create some of that change just by um, making sure those voices are heard and that their needs are clearly understood. Um, there's just some, some minor tweaks that I think it's not just about having a fleet of, of boats and being able to loan equipment to kids who, who can't, um, uh, can't afford it. Actually, I think some of the biggest things that kids in care need is for somebody to come to their community, reach out to them and say, we want you, you know, even if, even if we look different, um, our community, our yachting community wants you here and we want you to sail. Um, we're not going to wait for you to put your hand up or show up at our doorstep. We're going to reach into your community and take you and we're going to make sure that you can participate in this and that you know you're, you're more than welcome. And then secondarily, I think kids need transport especially kids in care, because if you, if you get moved around, um, if your circumstances change, you, need, um, you can't necessarily count on carers or staff and residences or whatever to get kids to practice or get them out there on the water on time. So um, if more youth sailing programs could, could kind of include that as well in how they fold um, in those communities, I think that would make a big difference to participation and um, increasing diversity as well. So um, I just have some, some little ideas like that of things that I've I'd love to help feed back to the communities that I've heard from to help them be more successful in, um, in opening their arms to each other. So given that work that you've started and are achieving, you know, do you feel like there's so much more that you can give to New Zealand or is circumnavigation still on the agenda? I personally really want to finish circumnavigating um, solo. It's just an achievement. Now it's a challenge that I want to take on and I like challenges. Um, they say that cruisers write their plans in sand at low tide and that's kind of how I feel I'm very attached to that goal of circumnavigating but I'm not necessarily attached to the previous plans I had around it so I see no, re no reason why I still can't complete a solo circumnavigation but it might end up looking different than I thought it would it you know, could be that it's not on Windflower it could be that it's not cruising it could be that it's racing um or some other means of, of circumnavigating. But regardless, I want to use that circumnavigation to raise awareness about kids in care. Um, I absolutely love New Zealand, and I feel like there's so much more I could give and do here. And so um, I would like to, to do more here. Um, and I also, I appreciate a lot of aspects of, of Kiwi culture, you know, number eight wire attitudes and all that. Um, and uh, and the humility and the kindness and so um, it's a culture that resonates with me personally and I could see myself sticking around and giving more um, 
but I will circumnavigate solo, one way or another. Well, we certainly wish you well in that pursuit and congratulate you on what you've achieved here in a, a short space of time. And look, it's been a really powerful uh, interview, um, so thank you for sharing that. I do, just to come finish off though, I want to ask you um, your worst wipeout ever. <laughs> um, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. It's, it's been amazing to do this um, with you and to have a more relaxed conversation about, about my story and what I'm doing in longer form, so thank you. Um, I have two good wipeout stories. I feel like uh, uh, I need to give you one from, from California and then also one from... <laughs> from New Zealand so um, in California I was racing on that J105 um, in a series that was out in the Central Bay and, and if anybody's sailed on San Francisco who's listening um, you'll know that the, the Central Bay from the Golden Gate Bridge in um, kind of through Alcatraz and um, north, of the, north of the city front um, so right where America's Cup happened in, in San Francisco uh, it's called the Slot locally and it's kind of like the wind factory off of Wellington you know, it's just, uh, it just howls through there, especially in the summertime, in the afternoon. So I was out there racing on this, on this J105 and, and with the spinnaker up, and I think we'd, we'd rounded a mark. Oh, we rounded a mark and set the kite, and it was up, and, uh, and I can't remember if we rounded up or rounded down. I just know that I, was, I always did four deck on race boats, and so I was coming back, um, and I was sort of right on the, like, on the rail, and uh, we either rounded up or rounded down, and, and I suddenly just slipped, like, overboard. Um, I managed to put one arm around the lower lifeline, and the rest of my body was being hauled through the bay as it held, like, over 25, 30 knots there that day. I was just crazy, and it was so gusty. And, um, and I was half in the water in full wet weather gear. Um, and... Yeah, it was, it was really embarrassing for starters that I didn't keep my feet under me and that I, that I slipped overboard. I just felt humiliated to be doing that. And, and I can't remember, but it was, a big, it was a big regatta, and I think it was a big like, one-design J105 competition, and I didn't get to race on that J105 very often. It always felt like a big deal if I got to race on it because there are a couple of people who were um, sometimes on pro boats and stuff on that boat. And so, oh, it was just humiliating. Um, and some big guy just, you know... Like I just remember somebody sort of reaching down and lifting me up from under the arms and getting me back onto the boat. I was I was soaking wet and um, my uh, my pride had had definitely taken a hit. So um, so yeah, almost almost falling off a boat just inside the Golden Gate Bridge with the the current going you know, four knots or whatever and wind howling. Um, my New Zealand wipeout story is is perhaps more humiliating. Uh, so the at the very start of my solo figure of eight, I'd come up from Tauranga where I'd gotten all the work done on the boat and, and been for lockdown, so I'd come up to Auckland and I was in the basin in Viaduct Harbour um, and there were almost no boats around and I was in this super yacht slip that you could fit like six of my boat in and the cleats on the, on the docks were really, really far apart, so when I'd come in the wind had been blowing from one direction and we'd been fine where we were um, but, uh, but then the wind had shifted and it was the next day or two days later or something and I wanted to adjust uh, how she was tied up um, and try to get a spring line on and stuff. So anyway, uh, I took the stern line off the dock, um, but it was still attached to the boat onto a cleat, and I was putting all my body weight in, trying to haul the boat in. Um, and as I put all my body weight into this line, hauling the stern of the boat in, 
I, the side attached to the boat let go and I fell backwards off the dock um, in front of one of the yachts that was, had actually just loaded up a number of VIPs for one of their first VIP charters for the America's Cup. Um, and uh, yeah, 8.30 in the morning, I think I fell off the water, uh, off the dock into the water in front of them. Um, and it was rather humiliating. The, the skipper of that, of that yacht came over to, to help fish me out and um, somehow I, I, I managed to, to climb up off the dock um, as well. And uh, yeah, so that was really humiliating. And um, I actually just saw him the other day. I, was, I wanted to come and say hi to him. He'd been so kind to me while we'd been there in the viaduct. Um, and I went to see him the other day and say hello. And, and his first words to me were, um, fallen off any docks lately? <laughs> But um, as a solo woman, I think sometimes you feel like you're supposed to be setting an example of, of the competence of all women in sailing. Um, and so it's extra humiliating when something like that happens. And here I was saying I was about to sail around the country in a figure of eight. Uh, I'm, I'm just amazed um, that he was as kind as he was and that anybody believed I actually could make it around the country after falling off the dock. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about me. I'm sailing around the world. I'm okay. But I'll be just fine. Mm. <laughs> Oh, good story to end on. Um, so, yeah, look, what, thanks again. I uh, really appreciate you um, making the time to chat to us on Broadreach Radio. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you want to know more about the work Alana Connor is doing and how you can help, then check out her website, peregrinasales.com. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Broadreach Radio. And if you've liked what you've heard, then please don't forget to give us a like and a follow. And if you've got any suggestions or feedback, then drop me a line at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. In the meantime, I'll catch you on the next podcast soon. Bye.